Everybody and welcome back to the Palace of Glittering Delights. I am your host, Andrew Leyland. I don't normally do an opening to this. We normally just leap straight into it because trim the fat is what I say. But first of all, I wanted to apologise for the amount of time it has taken for this episode to come out. Obviously, if you are a Facebook chum, you know that uh, the family recently took a holiday to Florida where we met lots and lots of lovely people. But when we got back, real life interfered every time I tried to, to sit down and do something. But I'm back and hopefully a little more regular. I should eat more bran. We're carrying on with our look at Untold Tales of Spider-Man, beginning with issue 14, which brings back The Scorcher, returning from issue 1. The cover by Pat Olive and Alve is pretty standard as The Scorcher strides towards the reader, flames flickering around him. Spider-Man is only represented by the spider signal, which The Scorcher strides over. One Thing Right was written by Kurt Busiak, as all the issues today are. The first emotion I felt upon opening this issue was sorrow, as I opened it to the cover separated from the issue. Nothing ripped, it's just as if the staples in the cover had had enough of each other and decided to separate. The splash page is simply magnificent. Following the rule of threes Olaf constructor page that has a prominent foreground image, high school student Tiny McKeever pumping gas and reacting to his name being called. The second layer is the bustling New York City street, and the third layer is a minuscule Spider-Man, the originator of the sound Tiny is reacting to. It's simply gorgeous. The Marvel Universe in microcosm, the everyday mundanity of people going about their business, as the extraordinary Spider-Man swings above their heads. The story itself is a relatively simple done-in-one, with Busiek wrapping up the other outstanding subplot of his, Whatever Happened to Tiny McKeever. And as I'm reading this, the cover has just ripped down the middle. Awesome. Anyway, Spider-Man is attacked by the Scorcher, which surprises him almost as much as seeing Tiny. The Scorcher is ranting about Spider-Man having ruined his cushy birth and spoiling his life by getting him sent to prison. In between avoiding fire blasts, Spidey points out that A, the Scorcher was a crook, and 2, he was hurting and maybe killing people, so cry me a river, build a bridge and get over it. This is essentially the Scorcher's shtick throughout the entire issue. He's such a self-pitying whiner. Nothing is his fault or a result of the choices he made. It's all Spider-Man's fault. As such, he's not a villain we feel any sympathy for. Now, I don't need to feel sympathy for every villain. I like that the Shocker, for example, is a bank robber and that's it. But the Scorcher is a very entitled whinger and I just wanted Spider-Man to punch him in the face. Sadly, that doesn't happen, because this is the opening of the story. Spidey is very much on the back foot, and instead chooses to exercise the better part of valour, i.e. he hides until the trouble goes away. The opening is nevertheless fast-paced, frenetic and exciting, showing Busiek's command of action and Olive's exquisite pacing. With the Scorcher gone, Peter confronts Tiny. It is as Peter suspected. Tiny has left home to quit school due to his abusive father. He's happy to have seen Peter, but has no interest in returning to school and asks Peter to leave. On his way out, Peter notices something odd about a section of the gas station floor, but is more concerned with Tiny and pays it no more thought. And if you guessed that the Scorcher's hideout is the gas station, award yourself a no prize. 
It's a staggering coincidence that Peter should happen to swing by a gas station that happens to be where Tiny is working, that also happens to be the cover for the villain's lure, but comics. More great art from Olief as Peter takes Betty on a date. The details in the panels at the restaurant is simply stunning, with a great attention being paid to the backgrounds and the faces of the other people in the scene. Speaking of other people in the scene, Peter spots a man that has been following them for some time, and although he doesn't get a good look at him, Betty does, and she excuses herself and leaves. This subplot is something Busiek introduced a few issues ago, and it will pay off in the next issue. At school, Jason Ionello returns to find himself shunned by all after the death of Sally. Peter tries to extend an olive branch, but Jason is even more of a tool than ever and throws Peter's gesture back in his face, saying that whatever he has become, he will never be like Peter. Liz Allen tries to comfort Peter, but Peter isn't really too bothered. I wonder what Jason would have made of a Peter Parker that married a supermodel and has his own company. The scene is interesting for having Flash talk about a recent football game, but once again we readers don't actually see him play. I'm beginning to think Flash's football prowess is a Walter Mitty-esque dream that Flash has had, and he's convinced everyone that it's true. Everyone is concerned for him and just goes along with it. Still, Busiek is masterful in constructing his plots. He's juggling new ideas, following up on old ones, and still telling a story that makes sense to readers, just picking up this issue with a minimum of expository dialogue. Obviously, this Peter Parker slice of life, in which everything sucks, is rectified by Aunt May, who tells Peter that when life's large with the suckage, you need to do one thing right to try and balance the cosmic scales. There's the title, Take a Drink. Peter can't stop thinking about Tiny, and with May's words echoing in his head, he decides to go back to talk to him some more. Needless to say, he runs into the Scorcher, and the rest of the issue is a well-choreographed and laid-out action scene, where this B-grade whiner actually manages to give Spider-Man a hard time. Spidey comes out on top, only when Tiny distracts the Scorcher long enough for Spidey to think of a solution. The Scorcher's origin is revealed in three whole panels, where we learn that he was blackmailed for a crime he didn't commit, and instead of protesting and proving his innocence, he decided to run away and become a criminal. It's not a deep motivation, and not particularly well thought through, but it's enough to send him over the top into outright insanity, when Spidey calls him a coward for not standing up for himself. This leads to the Scorcher's flame tanks rupturing, and Spidey has to choose between saving Tiny or the Scorcher. He chooses Tiny, and the last we see of the Scorcher is a huge explosion as the gas station go boom. Spider-Man gives Tiny a pep talk about choosing life over lies, and Tiny starts to think it. The issue closes not with a couple of people running down the streets of Edinburgh, but with Spider-Man swinging away. It sounds like I haven't really said a lot about this one, and that would be correct. This is a hugely enjoyable and entertaining issue with great art that manages to wrap up some subplots whilst introducing others. It's not groundbreaking, nothing happens in the sense that this will have a major repercussion for Peter later, and not everything we know is wrong. It is, however, a good, solid, action-packed, character-driven, well-written and well-drawn comic that leaves the reader satiated and fulfilled. I had no, is that it, reaction to it, nor did I feel like I'd wasted my time and money. A good story, well told. There's nothing wrong with that. That this feels so packed is also a credit to Busiek, as the issue is a page or two shorter than usual to allow for the inclusion of a continuity guide, explaining where all these untold tale stories fit into the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. People like me appreciated things like this. This issue, for those that care, takes place after Amazing Spider-Man issue 13.
Issue 15 of this book has a cover in which Spider-Man is backhanded by a man in a grey suit. The background is a Daily Bugle newspaper headline that reads, Battle for the Daily Bugle. Interestingly, all the text on the paper's cover is legible. The headline is also the title for a story by Busiek and Olive with inks by Alve and Pam Elkeland. The story focuses on a character Busiek has been fleshing out since the series began, Betty Brandt. As an aside, this is yet another issue where, as I'm reading it, the staples have come loose from the cover. I know these were only 99 cents, but really? Some quality control, people. Our story opens with Betty Brandt stealing inside Jonah Jameson's office under cover of night and opening his safe. She's been guided by her ex-boyfriend Gordon, who really is a moron. To Betty's surprise, Gordon doesn't steal anything from the safe, rather he leaves something behind. This opening is on shaky ground. Gordon implies that something may happen to Betty's mum if she doesn't help, but it's odd that she wouldn't phone the police, or even Peter. Even assuming Gordon went to Betty's apartment, grabbed her and then came straight to the bugle, it's odd that Betty doesn't resist in even a small way. With the papers planted, Gordon and Betty leave with some oblique reference to Gordon's new friends. If you've been paying attention, you will have noticed that ever since Gordon was introduced, Busiek has been seeding his return, and it does take a genius of Sherlockian proportions to realise that this is also the shadowy figure that has been tailing Peter and Betty in recent issues. But what of our hero, I hear you cry? Well, he's busy preventing yet another bugle delivery truck from being robbed, something that the driver exposits to Spider-Man after the crooks have been tied up and left for the police. This is referring to the ongoing exploit occurring in Amazing Spider-Man 14 and 15, and gives us, lovely listener, some small indication where this issue takes place. At school, Peter listens to the Expositional News Network, which is emanating from Flash's ever-so-quaint AM radio. The expositional news network is obviously copyright Michael Bailey. Peter learns that Jonah has been arrested on charges of financial malfeasance. I know I'm beginning to seem like one of those joggers who just runs round and round and round, but Busiek knows how to open a comic, and he opens this one magnificently, setting up the dilemmas, feeding off what has gone before, and setting up newer problems with a deft hand. Spider-Man arrives at Foley Square to check out Jonah, where he learns that the man himself has made bail and is ranting on the steps about the incompetent bungling police force and the injustice of it all. Oh, the pain! The pain! Eddie Brock of the Daily Globe asks if Jonah is considered a flight risk, and Jonah launches into a hysterical tirade about the reputation of the Globe as a reputable news source. Fake news, says Jonah, and he's always at his best when he's a blustering blowhard, but one with conviction and a point of view other than I hate Spider-Man, so these moments are nicely done. There's nothing Spider-Man can do here, so he swings over to Betty's. The characterisation is handled beautifully. Jonah is... well, he's Jonah, but he's sympathetic this time as we know he's innocent. Peter is motivated by selfish reasons to find out what's happening as he doesn't want to lose his major source of income, but this again is a moderately realistic depiction of a 15-year-old's thought processes. Everything's about them at that age. Flash has very little panel time, but he wants to see Jonah, and by extension Peter, fail because they are besmirching Spider-Man's good name. Neither Flash nor Peter seems to have considered the option that Peter could always sell his photos to another paper. At Betty's, Peter meets Gordon, and Gordon backhands him, sending Peter flying and knocking him out. Peter awakens, surprised, as with his powers, no normal man should have been able to do that to him. 
He puts his foot in it with Betty regarding her brother's criminal ties, which, under the circumstances, hits a nerve, and he returns to school. Tiny has unexpectedly returned, having secured a different job at a different gas station. This is subtly handled by Olaf, who just simply has a different company name on Tiny's lapel. Granted, I don't suppose Tiny really had much of a choice, given that his last attempt at gainful employment blew up. Jason is the only one not happy to see him, bemoaning his own lot and falling deeper and deeper into a well of bitterness. Flash dismisses Jason as a loser, but Peter turns Flash a new one, saying Jason needs his friends. Peter is being remarkably kind to Jason, given that they never liked each other, and whilst Peter obviously sees some of how he himself is treated in what's happening to Jason, it's hard not to read this as his own guilt over what happened to Sally. After school, Spider-Man heads to the Bugle, only to find Gordon there turning the screws by telling Jonah that if he sells his interests in the Bugle to Nick Lucky Lewis, all his problems will go away. And by sell, Gordon means give, and by go away, he means only just begin. Spider-Man intervenes and we get another fight in the bowels of the Bugle. This is better than it has any right to be, even though we've seen all this before. It's another brilliantly drawn sequence, very funny in places, and it is undeniably amusing to see just a regular man in a suit beat on Spider-Man. Instead of going toe-to-toe, Spider-Man instead plays on Gordon's insecurities, peeling away at the man's damaged ego by pointing out that he's merely a dog to Lewis, a tool to be thrown away when the job is done. As Exhibit A, he points out that Gordon could have let Jonah sweat, done nothing for a few weeks, let the noose tighten around Jonah's neck, and then make the offer, when Jonah would have been more inclined to take it. By jumping the gun, Gordon screwed up. Big time. How's that going to go down with your employer? asked Spider-Man. With Gordon angered, Spider-Man is more able to get the jump on him. This is all great stuff. Spider-Man has used psychoanalysis on his enemies before and since, and it's a clever way to bring them down. All his enemies have an ego, and by turning that ego down, Spider-Man manages to get under their skin. Gordon is a plot device, no more, no less. It's a bit of a cliché to have Betty's story wrapped up in a superhero fight like this, as it adds to the idea that there are no normal people in Peter's life anymore. But after this issue, Gordon's gone, never to be mentioned again. All that's left is the wrap-up. Betty goes to the police, presumably to tell them what went on, and all's well that ends well until Jonah fires her. Sadly, that doesn't actually happen, but we do see a familiar face on the last page calling a taxi. One, Mary Jane Watson. MJ also features prominently on the cover to the next issue. In fact, she is the cover. Mary Jane's dimpled face, cleft chin and bangs dominate as Spider-Man appears only reflected in her sunglasses. MJ remains a big draw, so featuring her like this makes sense. The cover states, who's that girl? But the title of the story is The Boy Next Door, inverting the commonly used description of MJ herself. This issue is interesting for a number of reasons. Number one, Dick Giordano inked it. Readers of a certain vintage will primarily know Giordano as an executive editor at DC Comics, and whilst he had inked a number of Marvel comics, it's still a surprise seeing so obvious a DC guy's name in a Marvel book. Secondly, this story is almost entirely from Murray Jane's point of view. It's a continuity insert, much like the Harry Osborne issue, but these people did exist before Peter met them, so seeing them as they were before we knew them is interesting. Unlike the Osborne issue, though, this comes with its own problems. In writer Tom DeFalco's time on the strip in the late 1980s, Mary Jane was established as to be aware that Peter was Spider-Man. 
This was later further retconned by writer Jerry Conway that Mary Jane knew from the very beginning, as in the night that Peter went out to catch his Uncle Ben's murderer. This is a retcon that has never worked for me. DeFalco kept it nebulous as to where MJ could have found out, but categorically stating that she is known from the start messes up a lot of older stories when you reread them. There are instances where Murray Jane comes across as a complete flake if she knows that Peter is Spider-Man from the very early days. Of course, none of this is Busiek's problem. He's simply using what is there to tell his story about the different masks people wear in public. Mary Jane is struggling with her own life, preferring to stay with her Aunt Anna than at home, where she has a certain amount of personal problems. With Anna, she is allowed to cultivate her party girl, I don't take anything seriously persona, and lose herself for a while. On the night of Ben Parker's murder, she spots Spider-Man leaving Peter's room and starts to wonder about him. Who is the real Peter Parker? The studious squirr she sees leaving the house for school, or the wisecracking daredevil known as Spider-Man? And how does she know who the real Mary Jane is if people can exhibit such different sides to their personalities? These ponderings on identity run through the issue and demonstrate the difference between Marvel and their competitors in the early days. Marvel characters had personalities and flaws and were contradictory and frequently unlikable. They felt like real people and Busiek explores that fully as MJ follows Spider-Man around to try and discern the truth even as she avoids her aunt's desperate attempts to get MJ and Peter together for a blind date. This does raise a few questions of its own. How can it be a blind date if MJ not only knows what Peter looks like, but his biggest secret? Given that MJ seems to spend a lot of time with Aunt Anna, how on earth did Peter never notice this gorgeous redhead living next door? Boussiette does a good job of imitating MJ's peculiar valley girl speech patterns that she had in the Stan Lee stories, implying that it's an affectation, a way for her to attract attention whilst also steering people away from the real her. Mary Jane is no flake but she pretends to be one very, very well. Some of the story is away from MJ's field of vision. Spider-Man fights the radioactive man and MJ keeps popping in and out of that fight as she grows more and more intrigued by Peter and Spider-Man. But we see things she doesn't, such as Peter and Liz colluding to throw Tiny and Jason a welcome back party. Peter's generosity is thrown back in his face by both Flash and Jason, who still prove themselves to be massive assholes, and also demonstrate that not everybody has different faces. Some people are exactly what they appear to be. There's nothing wrong with any of this. I think I would have preferred an issue where it was all Murray Jane, and Peter was just a supporting character in his own book. The only major development is that Betty sees Liz kiss Peter on the cheek and throws a strop. Just when I think Busiek is redeeming Ms. Brandt, she becomes all irrational again. Betty is a character in need of a redemptive arc. She flip-flops so quickly as to give the reader whiplash with her constant mood changes and odd behaviour, and I can only assume as a slightly older woman, she was remarkably good in bed for Peter to stick with her for so long. Next up is the Untold Tales of Spider-Man Annual for 1996. For a short time in the 90s, Marvel stopped numbering their annuals and instead took to naming them after the year they premiered. Why they did this, I can't say. Maybe they liked it better this way. Anyway, this was a 48-page annual by Kurt Busiek, Mike Allred, and Joe Sinnott. A Night on the Town is a thoroughly inconsequential but hugely enjoyable story concerning Spider-Man asking Sue Storm out on a date. This actually happened. Needless to say, Johnny Storm, aka the Human Torch, was not best pleased about this, ignoring that this was all his fault to begin with. 
See, Spider-Man was chasing a bunch of jewel thieves when the torch happened by, nabbed the thieves and took all the glory and adulation. Spider-Man, understandably perturbed, swings over to the Baxter building to get on Johnny's tit, but instead asks Sue out and, with her having had a rotten morning with Reed Richards doing his I'm a massive jerk act, she accepts. This is as big a shock to Spidey as it is to Johnny. Johnny decides to ruin the evening by telling the Submariner that Spider-Man has kidnapped Sue and we get a misunderstanding and fight in the mighty Marvel manner. This is pretty much the plot, but what this rather dry summation of events doesn't do is elaborate on just how much fun this is. Aldred's art is very cartoony and suits this story perfectly. He draws some excellent facial expressions on our heroes, even allowing Spider-Man to lift his mask on occasion, just to show his exasperated expression. Spider-Man also dons a web bow tie for his date with Sue, a beautifully funny visual gag. Joe Sinnott's inks don't quite suit Allred's art as much as they might, but at least the Fantastic Four are on model throughout. In fact, my overall complaint about the art is that Allred and Sinnott aren't as good at depicting teenagers as Pat Olaf, and the characters all look like the cast of a racially diverse but inoffensive teen show on the CW, i.e. they all look in their early 20s. The tone of the story is very much goofball fun, and Boussiet gets to let his hair down and just have a laugh with this quite ridiculous situation. Sue spends all the date moaning about Reed, and Spider-Man spends all the date moaning about how he doesn't get proper dates. The fight with the Submariner is enjoyable fluff, but the Fantastic Four figure it all out very, very quickly, and the resolution suffers as a result. At no point does the Submariner seek retribution for the Torch lying and manipulating him, and he flies off without a word. Spidey is much angrier, given that the fight very nearly hurt Betty Brant and Jonah Jameson, who, in a gargantuan coincidence that we would only accept in comics, are the only people on the street beneath the fight. Spidey manages to get his own back on Johnny, though. He webs up his beloved Stingray to the ceiling, allowing Johnny one last look before the hour is up and his webbing dissolves. The car plummets to the garage floor and lands in quite a few separate pieces. Putting that back together will keep Johnny busy for a while. As this is emulating the style of the old 60s annuals, there's a lot of bonus content. A gallery of Spider-Man's most famous foes makes a comeback, providing us with one-page posters and recaps of The Undertaker, Joey Pulaski, Supercharger, The Scorcher, Batwing, The Spacemen and The Wizard. One of these things is not like the others. Nice art on each page by a variety of different pencilers and inkers. This is followed by a three-page feature called How Kurt and Pat Recreate Untold Tales, which pastiches a similar feature in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1, a guided tour to the world of untold tales in which Spider-Man gives us a geographical lesson as to where everything is, and also points out the oddity of having a school in Queens named Midtown. The cast is covered, including people we've never seen before, and we wrap up the issue with the long-requested Recipe for Aunt May's Wheat Cakes. Well, I'm sure someone requested it. It's all surrounded by a comedy cover of the FF and the Submariner chasing Spider-Man. The Thing is stuck in the Fantastica, so he's worried about her, and Reed tries to stop Namor. The continuity placement of this issue is all over the map. The Untold Tales people themselves place it after Amazing Spider-Man issue 21, but it actually takes place after the backup story in Amazing Spider-Man 8, which was later moved along in the continuity to allow for the fact that Stanley screwed up regarding the Torch's girlfriend of the time, Doris Evans. Issue 17 of Untold Tales of Spider-Man features the second chronological appearance of Hawkeye, now world-famous after his appearance in the Avengers movies. The cover is great. 
Spider-Man is all over the foreground as Hawkeye takes aim. It's an unusual artistic purring as well, Pat Oleaf and Art Adams, but Adams must have hewed to the pencils very closely, as there's nothing really visible of his work. The unusual artistic purrings continue into the issue. Al Williamson, better known for his ultra-detailed science fiction work, inks the issue, which seems like a waste of his talent to me, because, again, he follows Oleaf's pencils to the line, making it very difficult to tell this is even him. Spidey Battles Hawkeye, The Marksman, is another wholly entertaining but quite routine issue. Other than showing Peter and Betty out for a meal on the first page, and that they have patched up their differences since last time, this is a story about Hawkeye and the Black Widow. Hawkeye started out wanting to be a hero, and through fate found himself going on the wrong side of the law, a situation this most manipulative Black Widow has exploited. She's got Hawkeye running around doing her bidding, in this case nicking a load of medical supplies, and she allays his fears as to whether he's doing the right thing by using sex to shut him up. Black Widow is a complex character here. She implies she's simply maintaining the balance of power by sharing US secrets with the USSR. Spider-Man, who is listening outside, thinks this is a load of horse manure, but Hawkeye seems to be falling for it. The first half of the book is a fight with Hawkeye and then a fight with the goons protecting Black Widow's apartment, but as usual for the team, it's well laid out and well written and makes the first part of the story sail by. There are a lot of familiar tropes here. Spider-Man takes a beating just to allow him to plant a spider tracer on the villain. He saves a load of people, only to have those self-same people blame him for the mess in the first place. And there's even an Aunt May pep talk. But Busiek handles it with his usual aplomb, and it's all fun to read, if nothing else. As Peter is told by Aunt May that a man must follow his own path, Peter realises that Hawkeye must choose to be a good guy on his own. This doesn't seem likely given that Black Widow has conned him into robbing a special missile targeting system from Williams Industries. She plays the balance of power card again, but that doesn't seem to work this time. Hawkeye may be a criminal, but he's not too happy about betraying his country. Widow tries a different tack. She tells Hawkeye that she will be punished if she fails. Hawkeye therefore breaks into the factory, but Spider-Man's tracer is still on Hawkeye's outfit, and he's followed him. After a fight that threatens to level the complex, the owner, Simon Williams, wanders in, and Spider-Man is forced to save him. Fed up of the trick arrows, Spider-Man yanks the quiver from Hawkeye's back, and Hawkeye threatens to blow Mr. Williams' head off with a blast arrow. Spider-Man reaches for Hawkeye's humanity, asking him when he is going to be his own man and stop being an errand boy. This touches a nerve and Hawkeye uses the blast arrow to cover his escape. As I said, this isn't so much a Spider-Man story as an attempt to make Hawkeye's turn from villain to hero seem more organic. It's interesting from that angle, and it does demonstrate how Peter's innate belief in people can work wonders if they are receptive to the idea. Overall, though, this isn't that essential. Hawkeye isn't really a Spider-Man character, or a character that has anything to do with Spider-Man. And the Black Widow, despite her name, never really became a Spider-Man character either. Not so much an untold tale of Spider-Man then, but an untold tale of Hawkeye with Spider-Man in it. Issue 18 sees the return of the Headsman from Issue 8. This is his last appearance in a Marvel book as of this recording. The cover is the headsman swinging an axe at Spider-Man. It's good, although Spidey's a little bit too skinny. The headsman's costume, having more than a touch of the goblins to it, is also a nice nod to the character's background. Spidey is attacked by the headsman whilst he's out trying to find something to photograph. The headsman is annoyed that our hero made him look like an idiot last time, ignoring the fact that what he's worrying makes him look like an idiot all by himself, and the headsman won't rest until Spider-Man is dead. Because this is the opening of the issue, Spider-Man has other things to do, and fakes his own death to get away. 
Welcome, lovely listener, to the broken MP3 portion of the episode. Just assume I've pointed out once again how Pat Olaf is an excellent fight choreographer and how Busiet knows how to grab a reader with an opening and how this is an awesome action beat and let's just move on, shall we? What makes this one work is Spider-Man's escape. The headsman tells Spider-Man his ruthless pursuit will continue until Spider-Man is dead and so Spider-Man rather comically hides under falling masonry and nips out through a basement window. Spider-Man's dialogue is deliberately comical and over the top. Oh no, I'm falling to my death! But the headsman falls for it. Sure, it's really stretching credibility that the headsman should attack Spider-Man just opposite the place where he's left his street clothes. And on that, why are his street clothes in the basement of a tenement building? Still, as Peter, he moseys over to his date with Betty, only to run into Flash and Liz. Liz and Betty are as frosty to each other as ever. Well, Betty is. Liz ignores Betty in favour of flirting with Peter, practically ignoring her boyfriend and his girlfriend in the process. Betty oddly doesn't freak out completely when Peter therefore suggests a double date, which goes about as well as Jeremy Clarkson turning up at a meeting of the Electric Car Fan Club. All nights end, and this is thankfully no exception. Peter finally manages to get away and blow off some steam as Spider-Man. Across town, the headsman is crowing about killing Spider-Man to Nick Lucky Lobo, a low-level gangster from earlier issues of Amazing Spider-Man. His crows fly south, however, when one of Lucky's men bursts in, yelling about how Spider-Man just blew up one of the fur-robbing crimes. Ain't that a kick in the head, says Lobo, and the headsman smashes Lobo's desk and flies off on his familiar-looking glider to pursue his prey. Speaking of familiar-looking gliders, Lucky is approached by another hooded and masked figure, who tells him not to worry about the headsman or Spider-Man. We don't actually get to see the Green Goblin in this sequence, but don't fret, lovely listener. He's coming. Busiek is given a little backstory to the gang war issues of Amazing Spider-Man, where the Goblin tries to take over Lucky's rackets, and he does a very good job with it. Over at school, Jason is worming his way back into Flash's affections by pointing out that Peter and Liz are spending a lot of time together. To counter this, Flash blusters his way in and tells everyone they are going on the trail of Spider-Man. Peter isn't too upset by this development, as it gives him a chance to slip away and give the kids exactly what they want. Now, if you've not foreseen that Spider-Man will show off to Flash, Jason and Liz at the exact same time that the headsman strikes back, then you're obviously new to this comics game. To those people, I say, welcome. Come in. Take a load off. Comics are cool and loads of fun and you're in for a treat. Thanks for listening. Anyway, the headsman attacks Spidey, crashing through the window of an artist's studio. Flash and co. run up to see the fun. This is a great little in-joke. Earlier in the run of Amazing Spider-Man, Peter was at an art exhibition, where there was a drawing of a foot with a toe sticking out of a sock. This was a gag about a letter Steve Ditko received about how he drew feet. This artist in this story has the same painting in his room. Whether this implies that this is supposed to be Ditko or not, I don't know. The artist is never given a name. The climax is really good, with Busiek tapping into a number of great character beats. The headsman hacks a hole in the floor, causing Liz to fall through. Jason grabs her and is determined not to let her die like Sally. Spider-Man is able to use his webbing to bounce the headsman out of the room, save the kids, and let everyone out of the building before it collapses. The headsman having cut through a support beam. 
Boussier balances the action, drama and comedy magnificently, proving once again why he's one of the best writers superhero comics have ever had. O'Leaf not only rises to the challenge, but climbs on top of it and stomps it into the ground, with a series of panels that are beautiful and easy to follow, despite everything that's going on. With Spidey busy, the headsman waits outside, but before he can confront Spider-Man, he himself is confronted by a mysterious green and purple garbed figure. The equipment the headsman uses is the strange figures, and he wants it back. When Spidey gets there, the headsman is a smoking wreck on the floor, barely conscious. This was a great issue. Busiek balances his own subplots with the Lee Ditko issues almost seamlessly, and in this particular case, enhances the original stories rather than detracting. If reading these in order, one can argue that the Green Goblin is rather more than he was revealed to be in the original issues, but he was never to be trifled with even then. His status is aided by only being a Spider-Man villain, which does give him a cachet, and seeing him here in little more than a one-page cameo really whets the appetite for future appearances. Speaking of major villains, next issue is Dr. Octopus. The letters page to this issue is notable. Back in issue one, the assistant editor, Glenn Greenberg, talked about how this was the perfect book for the times, what with Ben Riley recently revealed as the one and only Spider-Man. Well, here Mr. Greenberg has to roll that back with the editorial decision that Peter is in fact Spider-Man and Ben is a big old pile of goo on the floor. Greenberg is honest about the reasons, which is appreciated, and it doesn't really affect this book either way. Both Ben and Peter would have these memories, so Greenberg doesn't really have to say anything, but it was appreciated that he did. I also need to mention that this is yet another issue where the spine has torn as I was reading the comic. Are these comics really cheap or what? Which brings us to issue 19, the final issue for this episode, and one that's already ripped and fixed with sellotape everybody's issues of Untold Tales as flimsy as mine. The cover has Spider-Man and Doc Ock fight it out on the rooftop of Aunt May's house. Eight Arms to Hold You has an additional writing credit as G.L. Lawrence steps in to help Busiek out. Following on directly from Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1, the trial of Dr. Octopus sees Peter and his school chums watching from the cheap seats. Apparently, the trial of a dangerous criminal madman with arms that can be mentally controlled over great distances is open to the public. Go figure. Of course, Ock escapes, and with Flash and his cronies present, there's nothing Peter can do but watch and take pictures. He then takes his pictures to Jonah, who is suitably impressed, and offers Peter another gig on the spot. Take photos of the block party happening in Forest Hills tonight. Peter is miffed as he'd rather be out looking for Doc Ock, but an opportunity to make money is not to be sniffed at. Peter soon grows bored at the block party, however, especially when Flash and Co are there, and he skips out to find Ock. This is surprisingly easy as Dr. Octopus is robbing an engineering factory right here in Forest Hills. What a stroke of luck. Spider-Man breaks in after the bad Doctor and is attacked and left for dead. When he comes to, the security card thinks he was responsible for the break-in, because of course he does. We are back to an untold tale story that really isn't offering anything new so far. All of this has been done before, in either Amazing or here, and there isn't really anything different this time. It's all competently done, but unlike the Green Goblin appearance last issue, Ock's continuity is pretty tight in the early days of Amazing, so squeezing him in needs to be done delicately. The story picks up after this rather obvious beginning, though. Ock is wandering through Forest Hills, a sleepy suburb where no one pays him any mind, and he runs into Aunt May. 
May is so adult she still thinks Ock is a kindly doctor out making house calls, even after she was kidnapped by him in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1. She even invites Ock over for dinner to meet Peter. There's some good humour to be mined here, especially when May tells Peter later and he nearly has a heart attack on the spot. Switching to Spider-Man, he thinks that Ock will need somewhere big to hide out, and this takes him to the Acme Warehouse where he caught Uncle Ben's killer. Spidey's hunch is spot on, and he arrives just as Ock is talking to himself about this remote control flying bomb he's built. I do love that when a villain has no one to monologue to, they just do it to themselves. Spider-Man's arrival throws a spanning Ox machine, and the flying bomb takes off with Spider-Man and Ock fighting atop it. Aerial fight scenes are always fun in Spider-Man stories, and this is no exception. As ever, Busiek weaves his plot together very well. The bomb is not only over New York, which normally gives Spider-Man a decent motivation, but this time it's over his actual home and community in Forest Hills, which today also has Jonah there. Everybody Peter knows is here, and he fights ferociously to protect them. Busiek never loses sight of Spider-Man's sense of humour, though, and he throws barbs at Doc Ock as often as he throws punches. He uses Ock's own arms against him to destroy the propeller, and the bomb plummets into the lake below, exploding harmlessly, unless you're a fish. It's a small explosion, though, and Spidey reasons it must have only been the detonator, not the actual bomb. He hands Ock over to the police, and Jonah is left to stew in his own anger once again. Despite what I said at the beginning of this issue, there's nothing wrong with this actual story. It's fun and light, yes, but generally a joy to read. The final scene has Busiek address a continuity issue as Anna Watson was called Watkins in Amazing Spider-Man issue 18. Here it's used to establish that May is cracking up a bit, but I felt it was Peter who got it wrong in that issue. For those keeping a tally, this issue's cover also came away from the staples, which essentially brings this episode full circle. That's an appropriate place to end, I think. I'll play some promos from some other people's podcasts and we'll be right back with your feedback. Hey there, my name's Nathaniel and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new podcast. What are you doing? Oh, hey Liz, I'm just recording the the podcast promo. You're recording the promo for the Punch Like a Girl podcast? Yeah. You. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the hosts. I have more podcast experience. What? You're going to sit there and mansplain to people about a podcast focusing on graphic novels and trade collections with female protagonists? Um, oh. Yeah. Can I at least tell them how it's available on iTunes and Stitcher and at punchlikeagirlpod.wordpress.com? No. Shoot. All right, well, hang on. I'll delete this. We'll try again. That's not delete. That's the button for publish. And we're back. I should get a pretty little jingle, shouldn't I, for the email section? Um, Our first email tonight is Untold Tales of Spider-Man by the mighty Shag Matthews, who I had the distinct pleasure of meeting in Florida this year, along with tons of other great people who I won't mention because I'm probably bound to forget one and I don't want to upset anyone. But every single person was lovely and wonderful and it was a pleasure to meet them all. Anyway, Shag says, Hi Andy, hello Mr Matthews. I am loving your coverage of the untold tales of Spider-Man. I was a huge fan and supporter of this book when it was on the shelves. As you described, it was a perfect jumping on point for new readers due to the price and lack of continuity. 99 cents for a Spider-Man comic? Great idea on Marvel's part. I was working in a comic shop at the time and put this comic in as many customers' hands as possible. 
Best part, each issue was a joy to read. I suspect what limited the success of this book was that Marvel followed the traditional distribution channels. If they'd branched out and somehow gotten this comic into places that don't typically carry comics, yet would be logical for children to be present, this series may have become a huge seller. What if? Yeah, I still think that's something that they're not doing. I mean, I've read all the reasons why Tom Brave actually gave an interview about it at some point. But I, I don't see how the movies that are making these massive amounts of millions of dollars worldwide, how you can't sell a couple of comics to the people who are going watching them. Have them in the foyers of cinemas, if you want to. Like Rob Kelly keeps saying, have some treasuries in there. Have some collections, some cheap collections, not horribly expensive ones. This is why the omnibuses were so good. They were cheap, and there was an awful lot of reading material in there. The new versions that the printing i can't remember what they're called but i've not bought any because the color the prices on those is like ridiculous you need to get some cheap reprints of this stuff into kids hands you know in news agents in in supermarkets anywhere uh anyway Chad continues, years later, Marvel tried the continuity-free approach to gain new readers again with the ultimate line of books they were certainly successful but for some reason they never grabbed my attention Perhaps because my love still belonged to the Untold Tales series, and I felt I'd be cheating on the sales concept behind its back. I haven't read these books since their original release 20 plus years ago, so listening to your recaps of recaps. So listening to your recaps are very nearly like experiencing them for the first time. Your concise delivery and sharp wit bring a smile to my face during the recap segment, and of course your commentary is always lovely. I wasn't aware there was an omnibus of these 30 or so comics. I looked it up and it sells for $100 for a comic that was purposely priced at 99 cents per issue. Feels like a bit of a betrayal to the core concept, but I suppose the ship has sailed on this series bringing in new readers. Finally, nice to hear you are still enjoying your Batman phase. Let me know when it passes. It always does. All the best, the irredeemable shag of... Who True Freaks, the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, Aquaman and Firestorm, Fire and Water Podcast, Who's Who Podcast, Digest Cast, Hero Points Podcast. And Shag actually wrote, though, my goodness, my fingers are getting tired and I'm running out of breath actually listing the sheer amount of podcastery goodness that Shag bestows upon an ungrateful world. Uh, I think you're doing more than Mike Bailey is in at the minute, aren't you? It certainly seems that way. Anyway, all of them are, are, are wonderful because they are very worth checking out. And Shag is a lovely man, which um, will surprise an awful lot of you. But he is. He's, he's a top-notch bloke. Our next email is another top-notch bloke. Retold Untold Tales is from Christopher Franklin. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. Another great instalment on Untold Tales of Spidey. I think around this stretch is when I dropped out for some reason. I think I'm going to have to search the dollar bins at my comic shop and complete this run. You've sold me on it. I'm especially eager to read the Betty Branton Death of Sally issues. Again, can't wait for your courage of the Mike Allred annual, which is up next. Chris. Uh, well, I hope you enjoyed it, Chris. I've just mentioned the Mike Allred annual in this very um, episode. Episode, issue, so whatever you want to call it. Um, if you're looking for these in the in the cheapy bins, uh, I'd check that the spine isn't damaged or ripped or whatever, because mine are terrible. And I, for the most part, look after my comics, so I don't know why they're, they're falling to bits in my hands. But, you know, maybe they were very cheaply produced given the price, but... 
I don't know. No idea. The final email tonight is from Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks. Uh, he's doing an excellent job, is Nathaniel, reviewing this this season's Doctor Who over on his YouTube channel. And I very much enjoy comics, 90s comics retrial. I got the comics and the, the 90s the wrong way. I just listened to an episode of that. Um, talking about Amazing Spider-Man, appropriately enough, from the 1990s. The, the Spider-Slayer six-parter. Very entertaining it was, too. Good job, Nathaniel. Anyway, hey there, Andrew. Hey there, Nathaniel. I never picked up or really even knew much about the Untold Tales of Spider-Man series. It sounds like an interesting idea that, at the very least, is certainly a better way to revisit early material than Spider-Man Chapter 1. Oh, shudder. I kind of wish that comics would do something like this more often. Maybe if writers and publishers had an outlet to let them play with old status quos, they wouldn't feel the need to keep resetting the heroes to zero again and again and again all the damn time. Kind of like how DC didn't need a crisis reboot until they decided it was time to scrap the multiverse, where writers could indulge all kinds of notions and have had two hard reboots and numerous soft ones almost continuously ever since. Since you mentioned Spider-Girl, it made me think that it maybe it'd be fun to take a look at some of the Spider-Man spin-off material, both ongoing and miniseries. Stuff like Spider-Man 2099, or Silk, or Spider-Man Noir, Spider-Gwen, etc. Just please, not Venom. I'm going to have to slog through enough of his stuff for 90s Comics Retrial, available on the Council of Geeks podcast feed. Subscribe to the feed now, whilst supplies last. I don't need to have to hear about him on the stuff I listen to for fun. Keep up the great work, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, you are very, very, very welcome. That, unusually, Nathaniel, is something I have been toying with doing maybe some Spider-Girl or Spider-Man 29 or stuff like that. Uh, Silk and Spider-Gwen, I probably have to read because I don't really have a lot of interest in uh, in reading them. But um, they may be worth checking out just to see what they're like for purposes of a show like this. You never know. Uh, yeah, but this can be anything I want, so maybe that will happen at some point. I certainly have given serious consideration to Spider-Girl. Stay tuned. Uh, next time on an all-new episode of the Paris of Glittering Delight. I don't know. Uh, I am in the middle of writing the next issue, episode, script, whatever you want to call it, for Untold Tales. I also have two other episodes partially written. One about TV shows that were originally films and a couple of episodes of series that did that to have a look at and one about wonder woman again to hopefully tie in with the movie because i recently picked up the animated wonder woman movie for two pounds in hmv so i thought it may be interesting to watch that maybe watch another episode of the 70s tv show as well um just to just to whet my appetite for the uh, upcoming movie so any of those things could be coming up next. One of the things that people say I don't do a great deal of is actually plug myself, which is, is probably very true. Hey Kids Comics is the show that I did do with my son Michael. It only happens sporadically now that he's a university student and doesn't live at home anymore. But we're planning to get together at least over summer to hopefully do a couple of those. But there are five years worth of episodes for you to go and check out on 2TrueFreaks.com. There are more episodes of this show, The Palace of Glittering Delights, also on 2TrueFreaks.com if you wish to check them. I do the Fantasticast with Stephen Lacey, which looks at issues of the Fantastic Four in the index-style format. We're currently in the mid-1970s, and it's very interesting stuff. A lot better than I think you remember it. That is on flickeringmythpodcastnetwork.com, which you can go and check out. I would be very grateful if you would. With Michael Bailey, I appear on Views from the Long Box every now and again, and also I'm a regular on his new show, The Undiscovered Dark Knight. No... 
the underrepresented Dark Knight. No, it's not that either. Why can I not remember the title of this goddamn show? Let's just do some research. Yeah. The Overlooked Dark Knight. There it is. Just type that into your podcast feed of choice. And uh, Michael and I are having great fun. We've recorded a number of episodes, but as of this recording, he's only released one of them. So we can hopefully keep that that backlog coming. That's a fun show as well. Uh, with my good friends Bill Robinson and Paul Spatara, I do listen to The Prophets, which looks at each episode of Deep Space Nine. And we have a gas about it. That is also on Two True Freaks. Dot com And I think that's it for regular appearances. I crop up here and there every now and again. I'll let you know. The Palace of Glittering Delight is a Two True Freaks presentation and available sporadically. Uh, probably not regularly, which is a shame. If you want to support this show and other shows like it, when you buy something off Amazon, just bugger on off over to the twotruefreaks.com webpage, click on the Amazon link and buy something from Amazon through that. You don't pay any extra if you do that, but it does support our webpage and helps us keep the lights on for us to be able to produce content like this for you. Go on, it's the least you can do for us. All right, I will see you next time with whatever it is that takes my fancy. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please drop me an email at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Um, you can Facebook or Twitter or whatever you want to do. I mean, a lot of people have started doing that in their podcasts, referring to Facebook conversations and, and tweets and such. But there's such a massive gap between me recording them that I, I don't remember to uh, to look before I sit down to record it. I'm just lazy, I guess. All right, I will see you next time. Thank you for joining me. Goodbye.